As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. show and our latest batch of listener questions today we're talking about transfers of christian pulisic the greatest individual seasons of all time and the idea of holding a world cup every year oh boy oh boy oh boy my name is ryan bailey joining me today is a man who is sitting on the edge of his seat because of the intense action in madrid not the champions league but his hero andy murray taking on the world's (laughs) number one unvaccinated tennis player on the clay hello graham rudman I mean, do they have a separate rankings system now for vaccinated and unvaccinated? And Novak Djokovic is top of the unvaccinated. Yes, I, I am, I am uh, quite high on Andy Murray this morning because he did a good thing yesterday. Mm. Maybe tomorrow when he gets thumped by uh, Novak Djokovic, everyone's favourite tennis player, <laughs> I won't be so high. But we are, yes, thank you, Ryan. Yes, uh, you're welcome, Graham. We're recording on Wednesday. Uh, they play on Thursday, I believe, as you say. Uh, Murray had quite a, an interesting um, post-match, post-game interview. Game set match, match, post-match interview um, <laughs> on, on the clay in Madrid, Graham, where he said uh, words to the effect of um, he's he's world number one and I've got a metal hip, so he should win. He is the bionic man, though. I'm choosing to look on <laughs> the, the positive side. He's a robot. He's basically a robot, Ryan, and you can never beat robots in anything, especially tennis. Indeed. That's a proven fact. A lesson for us all. Less tennis chat, more soccer chat. Let's introduce a man who recently wrote a feature on MLSsoccer.com about the five players you should be watching this season, but didn't include any Charlotte FC players because of his personal vendetta against Carolinas <laughs> and all who sail within her. Is that right, Joe Lowry? That's So, Ryan, for a second there, I, I was wondering if I woke up and entered the wrong recording session for a <laughs> tennis podcast, and then you brought it back with the Charlotte reference. So I know now that I'm in the right place. Ryan, forgive me. That was clearly an oversight on my part in my in my great plan to have Charlotte all the way down to the bottom of the power rankings every week. This is just stage one, <laughs> actually, in that season-long plan. Stay tuned for you know the other 87 steps that I've got cooking. I, I can just imagine them at uh, Bank of America Stadium in the front office saying, OK, right, we're doing OK in the Eastern Conference, but where are we in Joe Lowry's power <laughs> rankings? <laughs> Still at the bottom. Damn! Double the efforts. Also, Triple the efforts. Also, Ryan, the piece was about breakout players in MLS, 
and Charlotte does have players that have played in MLS before, but they also have a whole bunch of players. I don't know what yeah, the ratio is players. of players who are new to MLS. So I don't, I don't know what you want from me, Ryan Bailey. I'm, I'm doing sorry. my best Can over you, here. I feel like you could break out if you're new, Joe. Well, I, I guess, but I didn't have any data on those players, and that's kind of the scope of what my articles are about for MLSsoccer.com, okay. and I want my editors to like me. Um, so that's that's kind of how that dynamic goes. Okay. Well, just to confirm, Graham, I have been, obviously, I've been to the Charlotte FC offices in Uptown Charlotte. Uh, there is a small whiteboard where they sort of deal with tactics and players, incomings and outgoings, a much bigger one next to it with Joe Lowry's power rankings on it, and it's, uh, just- it's a source of much consternation. Just Joe Lowry's face and a set of darts next to, <laughs> next to him. Indeed. All right, gents, it's a trio today. No Taylor Rockwell today. The lunatics are running the asylum on this Listener Questions episode. And by the way, thank you so much for sending all your questions in. If you have one to send us, totalsoccershow.com slash questions. And you can also subscribe and help us out there as well. Gents, we've got some great questions coming up today. I'm going to start with a couple of Brucey bonuses, a couple of bonus questions to start off with. Graham, this one for you from Joshua McCarty, who asks, if TSS was a pro soccer team, what would the kit look like? Go, Graham. Well, first of all, I really like the idea of TSS having a professional soccer team spin-off. In Scotland today, a YouTube channel has bought a club. So I think we should all chip together and, and buy a, a club. I mean, what's the going rate for MLS? $350 million? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think we can. We got that. I think we can scrape that. Taylor Taylor will put in at least three quarters Half. of that. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Sorry, so, Las Vegas. We're coming in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a hybrid uh, located team between Glasgow, uh, Phoenix, Rome, and Richmond. <laughs> it's a... <laughs> It's a it's a unique proposal, but anyway, in terms of the, the the kit that we would wear, first off, the crest would obviously be the TSS logo, Daryl's dad's ball. Um, I feel like the home kit would be classic. You always want the home kit to be something classic. So stripes or maybe a sash. I do enjoy a good sash oh, on a football sash. shirt, like yes. Peru, but maybe in TSS blue. Yeah. Um, in terms of a sponsor. I think we should do the Atletico Madrid thing of having different films, but as a means of educating Joe. So if we can make it a sort of must-watch list over the course of the season, that would be pretty good. Oh, that's good. And then I guess for an away kit, that's where you can experiment a bit more. So maybe tie-dye like last season's uh, PSG third shirt, or we could just combine all the colours of all the teams we support, which, by the way, is just red and white until we get to Wimbledon, blue and yellow. So blue... Uh, sorry, red, blue, white, yellow. Sure, yeah, that'll work. That's a common color combination. <laughs> that doesn't clash at all. That was an excellent answer. So Graham. good, very, very good indeed. Who who would make these kits? Uh, I'm a Nike fanboy for what it's worth. Um, Hummel, or we just get Taylor. I think T- Taylor's pretty good with uh, sewing with kit, a sewing right? machine. Yeah. so just get him to do it. Yeah, <laughs> Hummel making AFC Wimbledon's kits next season. Mm. I did see that. And I'm yes. jealous because that is that is I might have to actually buy one of those um, next season, Ryan. Yeah. So I'm hoping they look. go more forward Madison than Everton with their designs, but we shall see, Graham. I like the Everton kits. It's just a shame the team wearing them is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, very good stuff, Graham. I'm looking forward to us starting our pro soccer team and getting that uh, investment from Taylor to uh, get the entrance fee into Major League Soccer. Another bonus question. This one aimed at me from Derek Dickinson. A lovely alliterative name there. Uh, Does Ryan or Greg Berhalter love Starbucks more? Who has more Starbucks mugs? Um, If you may be following me on social, there's no reason why you should, but if you do, you may have seen uh, last weekend they opened the first Starbucks in Rome, Italy. Uh, I drove 
drove 35 minutes just to go there and have a cafe <laughs> oh latte from Starbucks and a nice um, little ice bun thing as well with it. It was amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> By the way, three euros for a grande latte. That's incredible. The, the price is, is really good. good because coffee is much cheaper here in general. I suppose they have to compete. Um, but we have to address the fact we've done it before. I'm basic. I like Starbucks. <laughs> I used to go to Chili's every Tuesday. I've, I've got Vineyard Vines clothes. Oh, right. I watch This Is Us. You I, check I, all of the criteria, Ryan yeah. Bailey. <laughs> Do you know what, though, Joe? I think my basicness is a reflection of the fact that I love American culture so much. And like it or not, Joe, that's American culture. You're quite right, Ryan. I think, I mean, this is something we've talked about before, and it's something that I truly believe, that you are the most American person on this podcast. And that includes the podcast when Taylor and I are both here. You have all of those things on lock. I don't know when the last time I went to a Chili's was. I'm not against Chili's. It's not It's not bad. It's just also not good. And I think that is sort of the range that all of those things you listed fall into. But all, all of that said, Ryan... I am very happy for you, genuinely, that they have a Starbucks in Rome now. I hope that makes your Italian experience – I shudder at saying that. I hope that makes your Italian experience <laughs> a little bit better. I, 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 uh, I can accept, Ryan, that you like Starbucks because I don't really have anything against Starbucks. I'm certainly not a super fan like you are. I've had a Starbucks from time to time, but I just can't get my head around that you move to the land of coffee. <laughs> And are so delighted that there's a Starbucks now, 35 minute drive from where you live. It just the mind boggles. Yeah, but if anyway, only they had Domino's and Pizza Hut. That's all I can say. Uh, if only, <laughs> if only. Um, Pizza's good. Joe, can we can we explain the Greg Borhalter Starbucks connection? I believe there was a press conference where he talked about his mug collection. I only have seven for the record. I know people who have oh, like late. thirty or forty. That's seven. I only started a couple years ago. To be fair, you know, one of my first <laughs> mugs I got, Joe, was in um, uh, Phoenix, Arizona. I've got the nice Ayo. orange Arizona one. What's on there? Like just a cactus and a tumbleweed, basically. Lots of big rocks. sand. Big rocks. Yeah, big rocks. That makes sense. We don't have a lot yeah. of sand, Graham. We do have some sand, but mostly just dust and dirt. Yeah, Ryan, <laughs> to, to address the question. I think Baralter has more simply because I think he's had for his job a lot of opportunities to go a lot of different places, even in the last World Cup qualifying cycle. Uh, I think this is when all of this sort of started to to come down about Greg Baralter loving Starbucks and Starbucks mugs. I believe he tried to get one from every away city that the U.S. traveled to over the course of World Cup qualifying and even before then as well, I, I think. So based off of all of those trips over the last couple of years, I, I think he might have the edge on you. But Ryan, there's time. I mean, you're yeah. you're just the turtle in this race between the turtle and the hare. <laughs> Very good, yeah. And they are excellent mugs size-wise, Graham. I don't know if you had a cup of tea from a Starbucks mug, but it's it's a really good voluminous mug. Uh, and by the way, Graham, you, you are going uh, to the great state of Florida in a couple of weeks. I hope you don't yeah. mind me revealing that on, on, on the podcast. Because it's, um, <laughs> it's too late. It's too late because I did it. Um, at Disney, they have Disney Starbucks mugs as well, like Star Warsy ones and stuff. Yeah. So you're going to have to pick up a few of those. So I, I actually have an Epcot one of these, and oh. I didn't realize it was a Starbucks oh. mug. Because if you've ever been to Disney World, the Starbucks are very well hidden, and you're not, you're not entirely sure that they are Starbucks. So I do actually have an Epcot one, but I don't have, I don't have seven of them. <laughs> these are not the mugs you were looking for. Star Wars? Anybody? <laughs> cool. All right, I'm going to uh, move on to the listener questions. Thank you very much for those warm-up bonuses we had there. John Hofstetler asks, given Joe's recent assessment of the Ballon d'Or, who should have won the Ballon d'Or that did not win the Ballon d'Or? And we're including uh, women who may have won before the Ballon d'Or Feminina existed as well. Uh, Graham, my immediate mind goes to a certain Polish striker, who has won yeah. the FIFA, the best 
Bestest Best Award and was second in the Ballon d'Or voting in 2021, but it still eludes him the big prize. Indeed. And what was the what was the special award they gave him again? I can't even remember. Like what striker it was of the Year, wasn't yeah, it? Or Best Robert Goal Lundowski. Scorer or something like that. <laughs> it was yeah. um, Bart Simpson's cake that said, at least you tried on it. <laughs> yeah, in, in bronze. Um, <laughs> yeah, obviously the, the, the answer to this, certainly the most recent answer, latest answer is, is Robert Lewandowski. Quite clearly the best player in the world in 2020 when France Football, who um, organise and control the Ballon d'Or, they bizarrely cancelled the award due to COVID. Yes, there was a global pandemic. Yes, the football world stopped for about two to three months. But in my opinion, there was still plenty of football played that year, certainly enough to, to give an award out for the Champions League was completed, Premier League seasons were completed. So it seemed strange that they cancelled it that year and Lewandowski was pretty much nailed on to, to win it in 2020. Even in 2021, I think his case was stronger than, than Lionel Messi's. I actually think Karim Benzema's case was also stronger than Lionel Messi's, but Messi wins it again. So you could say two years in, in a row, Lewandowski should have won the award. And I'm also going to put forward uh, Raul Gonzalez, the former Real Madrid striker. So perhaps the most surprising Ballon d'Or win of modern times was Michael Owen in 2001. And I would argue that Raul should have won it that year. So between 1998 and 2001, Raul scored 29 goals or more in three straight seasons for Real Madrid. He won La Liga in 2001. He won the Champions League in 2000 and then in 2002. And he was one of the best players in the world for a prolonged period for a huge club that won loads, including European Cups, and yet he never won a Ballon d'Or. So that would be another one of my suggestions. That's that's a great shout for Raul. A real Raul coaster of emotions, you could say, Graham. Boo. All right, I deserve that. Joe, what else you got? <laughs> so I first want to address what John says about my recent assessment of the Ballon d'Or. Thank you, John, for, for bringing that up, because I, I don't think the Ballon d'Or is a good award or a sensical award. Maybe that's the thing. Awards are fun, and I'm not trying to be a, a rain cloud over here, but in a sport like soccer, it is so hard to just pick out one player from a whole mess of them on the field at any given time and just immediately say this is the best player and has been over a calendar year. There's so many factors. The, the voting criteria is so vague. I just don't – it just doesn't make sense to me. It's illogical to my brain that is trying to be logical. So that's my assessment of the bound or that I assume John is referencing because I have made that point before. All of that said, my actual answer to this question on the men's side is Lionel Messi in pretty much every year that he didn't win it since 2010, with the exception of the two years that Graham mentioned, so that would be 2020 and 2021. I think there are strong arguments there for Robert Lewandowski, but even then, I'm not so sure that Messi doesn't deserve that award. Messi, in my mind, if you look at how he influences games, and I know everything I just said, Messi is maybe the one player that I think can can stand outside of that. You look at how he influences games, how he scores goals, how he creates opportunities, how many incredible teams he's been a part of, and how many incredible individual seasons he's had. More on that later. I, I, I just don't see how he isn't pretty much every year the most deserving winner. And, and that's why I say the criteria is not clear because it seems like international tournament success is weighted in some years and, and maybe not in others. Ronaldo wins in, in 2016. Luka Modric wins in 2018. I, I think Croatia's run certainly had something to do with that. But as good as Luka Modric is, if you're, if you're saying he's a better player than Leo Messi, you're, you're not watching the same sport that the rest of us are watching. So that's, that's my thought on the men's side. On the women's side, the Ballon d'Or Feminine has only been awarded since 2018. So there's only been three winners because uh, the COVID year there wasn't 
uh, uh, wasn't awarded. There was no winner awarded in that year. So I have a, a, th- a few snubs that would have won it in years past, I believe. Marta, for one, Brazilian legend, has played all over the world, um, tons of caps for the Brazilian national team, played in NWSL, is, is so good, is so good and has been for so long. She certainly would have won one at some point. Mia Hamm and Michelle Akers are my other two obvious nominations. U.S. Women's National Team stalwarts um, from, from years past, Certainly two of the best women's soccer players, three if you, if you bring Marta into that group of all time. There's a whole host of other women that, that would have been in contention for that trophy over the last couple of decades. But those are the three that definitely came to mind for me first. And I would put forward on the women's side, I have to make the case uh, for her because of my nationality and roots. I would put forward Kim Little maybe as well, um, looking through her individual awards that she she won uh, Women's Footballer of the Year in 2016, Women's Player play, Players Player of the Year 2013, NWSL Most Valuable Player, NWSL Golden Boot, Best 11, uh, Countless Player of the Month, Countless Player of the Week. So yeah, she um, she might have been the first Ballon d'Or winner since. I'm trying to think Scotland. Dennis Law must have won it back in the day. I don't think another Scottish player has come close to winning the Ballon d'Or. So it's a shame that it didn't exist on the women's side when she was at her peak. Indeed. Good stuff, Jets. A couple more names I'll put forward, um, particularly on the men's side. Um, Graham, how about Paolo Maldini? Um, from my notes, mm-hmm. best I can see, he did was third place in the um, uh, Player of the Year slash Ballon d'Or. Man who won five European Cups, won a World Cup. Not bad. Uh, Pretty good with both feet. A real gent. He's got a page on the ATP Tour website, which we discussed last week. Pretty good nominee, I'd say, Graham. Yeah, absolutely. And he was on my list. And another one that was on my list, just to to round it off, would be Thierry Henry. Um, Given that he was, for me anyway, he was probably the best player of the Premier League era that we've had so far. And Ronaldo played in the Premier League, but he wasn't at his peak in, in the Premier League in his first stint. That was really at Real Madrid. And in the season that Arsenal went unbeaten, their invincible season, he scores 30 goals that season and he didn't even finish in the top three of the Ballon d'Or voting that year, which seems slightly off, particularly because Deco, good player and all that, but not Thierry Henry, he finished third ahead of Henry in in the voting that year. So something strange going on there. Maybe if Henri answered Virgil van Dijk's text messages, he'd, uh, things would have been different. Did you see that thing on the on the Champions League <laughs> coverage on CBS? Uh, yeah. v- vaguely, yeah. I haven't actually watched the clip, but uh, uh, Thierry Henry on CBS last night said he texted Virgil. Yeah. Oh, it was the other so, way around, yeah, wasn't so, it? Virgil van Dijk said he texted uh, Thierry Henry. So van Dijk, van Dijk is pitched saying, oh, who's who's in the studio with you? And they say, oh, it's Carragher, Henri, and Mika Richards. Oh, I, I text Thierry Henry, but he, he never texts me back. And then it cuts to the studio <laughs> and they're like, explain yourself, Thierry. He's like, I changed my number. And he does his <laughs> He's little like, I don't have that number. Anymore. <laughs> Did I also see that they were downing beers as well uh, last yeah, night? Yeah, so straight after the game, Jamie Carragher gets like a four pack of Heineken out. Him and Mika Richards down them. Mika Richards does it in like two seconds. Uh, Jamie Carragher <laughs> downs it in the speed you'd expect from a man who probably hasn't drunk alcohol for most of his adult life uh, quite slowly. Uh, and like Kate Abdo's like, we've got another hour to go, guys. Like, chill out, please. Yeah. It, was, it was good TV, Graham. Good TV. Those American soccer broadcasting, I think, is different to British soccer broadcasting those those cbs shows are wild some of them are are just insane that one i think was was crazy but the craziest one was post u.s qualifying for the world cup when suddenly mika richards was in the studio and was arm wrestling oguchi on and 
everyone was hooping. It was it was absolutely insane. Good TV, uh, but purely chaotic TV as well. We, we know. I think what's interesting. I think because those the, the CBS uh, Champions League pundits, R- Richards, Thierry Henry, and and Jamie Carragher, they're often on Sky. They're Sky pundits as well in the UK. I think Graham. I don't know if you agree with this. They feel like they're on a looser leash because the oh, people yeah. in the UK aren't watching. They feel like they can have their shoulders drop a little bit when they're on the US broadcast, and it's much much more fun as a result. It is, it is totally different. I mean, Mika Richards is always a good laugh on BBC and he does Sky as well, I think. Um, so maybe he's the link between the two. He kind of manages to carry that brand over. But Jamie Carragher on Sky seems like a completely different person when he's on CBS downing beers and yeah. and uh, dancing. I think I saw him doing the Kristen Pulisic dance as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, he also asked LeBron James to come to Paris with him for the Champions League final. Just an impromptu. As you do. As you do. As you do. Look he's at us going off playoffs, topic. That's for sure. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one other name, by the way, on this question before I close it out, Andre Iniesta, um, pretty good player, um, a, a key part, Joe, of Barcelona's peak era as well, yet never won the award. Same team as Messi, doesn't qualify. Fair enough. That's All right. <laughs> Thank you very much, John, for the question. We'll be back with many more after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions episode. Here's one from Bobby Doxtator who's got in touch to say he would like our opinions on two summer transfers and if those transfers would be a good move for club and player. First up, Christian Pulisic to West Ham. Second up, Paolo Dybala, Dybala on a free to Arsenal. Interesting stuff here, Joe. Pulisic linked to um, Juventus, uh, as we record today on Wednesday, to replace Paolo Dybala. Um, also been linked with West Ham as well. And Dybala himself linked to Inter Milan, previously linked with Tottenham. But what do we, let's, let's start off with Pulisic, Joe, um, to West Ham. What do you think about that? Bobby suggests he'll get regular minutes there, be able to perhaps push them into the top four, and you know they could maybe make those finances work. So I'm not opposed to this move at all. From a from a fit standpoint, I think it works out really well. It's become pretty clear, and I think has been clear for a while, that Christian Pulisic is a much better fit for a team that attacks into open space and attacks in transition a lot more than Chelsea does. Chelsea's going to smother you with possession. That's the quality they have. Just think back to this past weekend, and you have Chelsea with a whole bunch of the ball against Everton's 5-4-1 block, and Everton did extend a little bit, but... Chelsea are, are going to dominate the ball. That's what they do, and it forces their attackers to play in tight spaces. And that's the stuff that a lot of the, the top-level attackers in the world have to learn how to do. I'm not so sure that Christian Pulisic has learned that skill set. At the same time, he hasn't gotten a lot of minutes this year to learn that skill set in the first place, but I digress. I, I think a team like West Ham that's going to be a little more defensive, they're going to sit a little deeper, and they're going to have more moments in games where they're attacking in transition. I think that team fits a player like Christian Pulisic and vice versa, much better than this current fit. 
from a from a USMNT perspective, which I know was not asked here, I, I think it's better for the U.S. if Christian Pulisic waits to move. And I know there's chaos at Chelsea, but I think it's better if he waits to move until after the World Cup simply to minimize his chances of getting injured, which has been a real issue for him. And getting consistent minutes in the first couple of months of the Premier League season before the World Cup doesn't honestly strike me as all that good of an idea for Pulisic and his international future, immediate international future, or the U.S. men's national team. But if we set that aside from a, a from a pure fit standpoint, I, I think it could be a ton of fun to watch Christian Pulisic at a team like that. Whether it's West Ham or not, I don't know. But somewhere where he can attack and transition a little bit more would suit him quite well, I think. What about Newcastle? Could you see him go somewhere like that, Joe? I, I could. Again, another another team that will have more of the ball, I'm sure, next season than they had for the majority of this season. But a team that still will attack and transition and be aggressive and, and be a little bit more direct at times under Eddie Howe, I could see that working. I don't know what Pulisic and his agent are looking for. It seems like a move is likely this summer from Mark Pulisic's tweets and from just you know looking at how much he's on the bench this season. Newcastle could work. West Ham could work. It could be a team outside the Premier League. I don't know exactly what that looks like, Ryan, but I think Newcastle fits into that same West Ham bucket if maybe down just half a step right now, even though they'll mm. overtake them eventually. Graham, your thoughts on Pulisic's potential movements this summer, West Ham, Juve or otherwise? I've I've swung back and forth, in my opinion, on what Pulisic should do in terms of his future at Chelsea. He started the season out of Tuchel's team, then all of a sudden he was Chelsea's most informed player for a period, and now he's out of the team again. So it's it's kind of been difficult to gauge where he's at. My gut tells me Pulisic isn't going to be a key figure under Tuchel, certainly not for a prolonged period, and particularly if Tuchel's sticking with that front two system that he's using at the moment with Werner and, and, and Havertz. That, that doesn't really suit Pulisic. He obviously can't... Well, he can play as a wing-back, but it's not his best position. I don't think he's that good through the middle either. I think if West Ham are in the Champions League next season, I'm saying yes, that would be a good move for Pulisic for all the reasons that, that Joe has has already referenced. I think he would be one of the best players for a team playing at a, a high level. That would obviously be a good thing. I also think David Moy's system would be good for him. There is room for wingers in a way that there, there isn't really at Chelsea at the moment. So I think he needs to be careful. If he is going to be le- leaving Chelsea, he needs to be careful that he's going to a club that is a better situation for him. Because if he's taking a step down and going to a team that still isn't playing to his strengths that's not going to help him in any way and it would be better to be at a team at a higher level where he's playing in the Champions League and maybe challenging for Premier League titles it would be better to, to be at that level and coming off the bench than coming off the bench for a team that isn't doing that so he does he does need to be careful and it is going to be interesting to see what he does this summer again uh, referencing what Joe said because of the World Cup at the end of the year should he should he stick or should he twist there's a little bit more riding on it than would normally be the case because of that World Cup at the end of the year Graham the West Ham thing with Pulisic this is a this is a, a pie in the sky idea here and it might involve selling Declan Rice and a few other players but Lukaku and Pulisic look uh, you know Lukaku going to West Ham them having you know a focal point as a striker who's not Mikel Antonio thoughts on that so just so just all the players on Chelsea's bench at yeah. West Ham. Yeah, that's right. So we, we can get Hakim Ziyech there as well. <laughs> and uh, who else is Rob on their Green. bench? No, Ko- not Rob Green. Kovacic and, uh, yeah, just get... Actually, they probably would all improve Chelsea. Eh, sorry, West Ham. So I think West Ham might be in favour of that. Okay, excellent stuff. Uh, okay, let's move on to Paolo Dybala, um, who is mm. linked to Inter Milan in the press today, Graham. Um, your thoughts on him potentially going to North London? 
So Dybala's such a talented player and I, I want to see him play for a club that, that builds around him in the way that Juventus really haven't in the last couple of seasons. I'm not convinced that Arsenal would be that team. I know Dybala can play as a winger, but I think he's most effective as a secondary striker and Arsenal don't really play with one of those, certainly at the moment under Arteta. I actually wonder, to flip it to the Pulisic side of things, I wonder if uh, if Chelsea might be a better fit for Dybala than Arsenal. They're playing with a secondary striker at the moment. As I said, Werner's that secondary striker alongside Havertz. So I could see Dybala and Havertz maybe forging some sort of partnership. So maybe if we could get Pulisic to Arsenal to play off that left side where they're a little bit weak at the moment and get Dybala to Chelsea, then everyone could be happy apart from Juventus. I don't know what they're doing, but... Who cares about Juventus and Agnelli in my book? <laughs> are, Chelsea, are Chelsea buying players? I don't know. How's that working uh, out? Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> I saw today that Abramovich is now wanting the loan repaid that he mm. said he wasn't going to have repaid. So I think they're just making up their own rules. Yeah, we shall see. Uh, Joe, what do you think about Dybala? I think Arsenal could be a good fit. Chelsea could be a good fit. That, that Arsenal one in particular is interesting to me because they already have Odegaard, who fits quite well into that 10 spot, and it's not quite the secondary striker role that Graham's talking about. But I I think Dybala and Odegaard would be a little redundant on the field together. Now, maybe I I can't say that because Arsenal need quality, and Dybala certainly is a quality player, so so maybe Mikel Arteta can find a way to make that work. I'm not totally sure if it would. If it does, it would be incredible, and it would be really, really fun to watch. But I don't know that it would. The other factor here for Dybala in this particular summer transfer window, and this isn't just Arsenal-specific, he's 28, and I'm guessing he's going to want a four- or a five-year contract. And I'm curious to get your guys' perspective on this, because if there was a transfer fee involved here, I, I don't know that he becomes a super appealing option for a lot of teams. Of course, he's an incredible player, so it sounds silly to say, but the way I kind of view some of these transfers is through the Liverpool lens. And the question I ask myself is, is this a transfer? Is this a deal that Liverpool would make? And in signing Dybala, a 28-year-old, on a four- to five-year deal, where you're going to have him at least until he's 30, and he might make another move before that contract expires, but you're going to have him for at least a while, is that a move that Liverpool would make? And in, in no. given how many signings they've made in that kind of mid to you know, 23, 24, 25 range, is a little older than that, and it might sound like splitting hairs, but I'm not so sure that clubs should be lining up for Dybala, but maybe the fact that he's on a free, and of course you have to pay his wages, which are very much not free, but maybe the fact that you don't have to pay a transfer fee makes it more appealing. It certainly does, but I guess the question is how much more appealing does that make it? Graham, do you do you think that his age will be any sort of deterrent, or am I, am I overthinking this? No, I think, I think for some clubs it will be a deterrent. I think it just depends on the club and what they're looking for at that time. So actually, Arsenal, I would say... Recently, they seem to be a little bit wiser on handing big contracts to players who are either 30 or approaching that 30th birthday. They've been stung with Ozo and and Aubameyang recently. It now seems like they're letting Lacazette go, despite the fact they would maybe like to keep him because he wants two, three-year contract extension this summer and and they don't want to keep him on that long. So, uh, yeah, you're right, Joe, to reference that. I would be surprised if Arsenal then gave 28-year-old Dybala a giant contract this summer. It feels like, again, we don't know what Chelsea's situation is with the ownership, um, but it, it feels maybe so, like something maybe Chelsea would do more than Arsenal at this moment to get someone in, at their peak because they obviously want to win right now. They want to challenge for titles right now. They're not really building for something, so maybe he would he would work a little bit better for Chelsea. The, the hunch that I can't quite shake with Dybala, I think I've said this before in the pod, is Atletico Madrid. Uh, Luis Suarez, it seems like he's leaving 
this summer. I think Simeone wants to add a little bit more creativity to that his team. They play with a front two often. Dybala would fit in well with that with that system. And also Atletico Madrid, they have they have money and and they they have signed uh, kind of players in their peak. You know, Griezmann comes back last summer, so it, it would kind of be a familiar move for them in terms of their strategy. And I haven't actually seen any speculation on that, but I just think Atleti is, it might be a good fit for him. Very interesting. Thank you very much, Bobby, for the question. We move on to one from not Gianni Infantino. That's not Gianni Infantino who has sent this one in. Thank you very much, not. Um, Suspicious. Yeah, well, wait to hear the question, Graham. What if we have a World Cup every year? Oh, there it is. Okay, yep, okay. What if we had a World Cup every year? Hi, Gianni, how are you doing? Um, And Not Gianni has uh, suggested a four-year cycle for the World Cup every year. Year one, a 32-nation World Cup. Yep, familiar with that. Year two, a B World Cup. Year three, a Confederations All-Star Tournament. Year four, and here's the interesting one, a co-ed World Cup. Wow. Um, five men and five women players outfield at all times. Um, and two goalkeepers? Yeah, one, who, are the, who are the goalkeepers? One man and one, uh, or one female? Or what's half the each. deal there? Take a yeah. half each, maybe? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it works. Um, Joe, this is, this, besides this being a FIFA wet dream, this uh, idea uh, of a World Cup every year, it does seem like it might interfere with maybe the Euros, the Copa America, the Cup of Nations, the Gold Cup. Protect the Gold Cup, Joe. Protect the Gold Cup. Somebody's got to do it, so why not? Let's let's make it us in that role. We're the Gold Cup protectors. I I don't really want a World Cup every year. I don't think it makes sense with the current international calendar. And and I just think there's already too much soccer, and so adding even more soccer to the soccer is not something that I personally am interested in. But that said, I do love some of these ideas, Ryan. And the one that stuck out to me the most, although I, I do love the Confederations All-Star Tournament idea as well, is doing some sort of co-ed tournament for for charity and i think that's a fun way to to do these last two ideas the all-star tournament and this co-ed world cup i think it could be a a fun way to raise money for a a worthy cause and i I would probably do it as more of a futsal style tournament than an actual 11 v 11 real open field kind of game i think that would highlight the skills of the individual players a little more and i I think it would be fun to see them competing on a slightly different playing field and i guess a playing surface I, i think you could do it to keep the the numbers even, I guess. Is there a goalkeeper? There's a goalkeeper in futsal. So maybe maybe this doesn't work. But just pretend there's no goalkeeper. Maybe you do a 4v4 with two players from each team, uh, two from the men's side of the of the international program and, and two from the women's side. For the U.S., I'm calling Weston McKinney, Christian Pulisic, Roosevelt, and, and Tobin Heath. So no one else can have those players if you guys were going to build your own teams. They're mine now. You can't have them. Um, okay. But I, I do think the co-ed idea is fun, and it could make for really compelling viewing, and it could be a fun event. Yeah, it definitely is fun. Graham, what do you think about that one? And also the Confederations All-Star Tournament that Joe mentioned there. That one sounds like it could have some potential as a as a bit of a novelty as well. Yeah, I'm going to reference tennis again with regards to the Co-Ed World Cup. This is what happens when Taylor takes one podcast off. <laughs> we bring out all the tennis and I noticed uh, Joe made a basketball reference earlier. Um, <laughs> we've been liberated. Um, all right, Gerard yeah, PK, let's hear about your tennis ideas. <laughs> Coed Coed World Cup is reminiscent of I think it's the ATP Cup in tennis where they have uh, kind of combined men's men's and women's matches in the same tournament and that's quite fun I don't think it's taken too seriously but along the lines of what Joe was saying you know if it was a charity event or something like that it could be it could be quite fun and quite chaotic and I am always in favour of of chaos in soccer the Confederations All Star Tournament 
is the one that doesn't, of the four, is the one that doesn't really interest me that much. I, I genuinely like the idea of a second tier World Cup. And I, I also like the idea of holding it an alternate year rather than having it compete against the actual World Cup. That way the tournament gets its, its own spotlight. So I, I like a lot of the suggestions. The one, yeah, year three Confederations All-Star Tournament is the one that doesn't really appeal to me just because with the exception of Andy Robertson maybe Scotland isn't really being represented there and I I also don't have any allegiance to Europe that sounds very Brexity but in terms of like passion I don't have any passion for Europe this isn't the Ryder Cup so I feel <laughs> like uh, yeah Confederations All-Star Tournament might just be an exercise in seeing how competitive a CONCACAF team would be against the best teams in the world. That's what this is all about, right? This is very conca cafe to see how that would yeah, that would line up. But Graham, it could be like the Ryder Cup. That's the point, right? I'm confused by the Ryder Cup. I don't understand how people are supporting Europe. As I say, that sounds very Brexity. I'm not talking about the governance of Europe as a continent because there's a Graham lot of benefits to that. Graham wants Brexit. Okay. <laughs> I'm talking about in, in, with national teams and teams, you need to have like a passion for your cause. I don't really know what, who's supporting Europe as a giant kind of trading block. Yay, trade deals. All right, we're going to put Graham's nationalist tendencies to the side for one moment. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I like some of these ideas, but I think overall, Joe, I want to limit FIFA's power as much as possible. Yeah. I want them to just have that one tournament to look after, maybe some awards. And, and a video um, game. And then have the, giving them an extra three and giving them something every year feels dangerous, doesn't it, Joe? Yeah, it feels like you give an inch and it's going to be a lot more than that. And I think FIFA might have already taken their inch. So we don't really need to, to move this process along any faster than it will already move. Okay, excellent stuff. Thank you, Not, for that one. Uh, let's do one more question before we take a break. This is from Adam Ulrich, who says, as the season draws to a close, looking at the Zweite Bundesliga table, it looks like both Werder Bremen and Schalke have good chances of being promoted back to the Bundesliga. Hindsight being 2020, would Josh Sargent and Matthew Hoppe have been better off staying with those teams, respectively, playing at a lower level and helping with a promotion push rather than transferring to Norwich and Mallorca, respectively? Um, uh, looking at the Zweite Bundesliga table with two games to play as we record, Schalke are two points clear at the top. Werder are two points behind them in third place in the uh, promotion playoff spot. If it stayed as it is in the Erste and Zweite Bundesliga, um, uh, Werder Bremen would play Stuttgart in that playoff. So uh, interesting times ahead for them. Joe, let's let's get your perspective on this because... The Zweite Bundesliga is a good league. It's got a lot of previous Bundesliga teams in it. Hamburger SV, Nuremberg, Paderborn, Fortuna Dusseldorf. And I'll tell you what, um, to reference Charlotte FC again, when the te- before the team started and they were starting to sign players to the roster, um, they were looking to place them and loan them in second-tier European leagues. They thought the championship was an ideal spot to put players in to prime them for MLS, for example, and the second tier in Spain. So that's a roundabout way of saying... For US players, perhaps the second tier of Germany would also be a good level to develop. Agreed. I think especially in these two cases. It's important, I think, that we take these on a case-by-case basis, but Sargent and Hoppy have had roughly similar seasons in that they both haven't really been playing, Sargent certainly more than Hoppy, and both seem to have stalled a little bit in terms of their on-field development. So with Josh Sargent and Bremen... I think, yeah, hindsight is twenty twenty, as Adam says, but it would have been better for him to stay than go and play as a right wing back in Norwich and then not really play a whole lot and score two goals against Watford and have that be it for his goal tally for the season. Now he's going to the championship and Timu Puki is still around and he's still going to eat up the minutes as a striker. 
So where does that leave Josh Sargent? And and I don't think it leaves him in a good spot, certainly. So that's that's Sargent. I think it probably would have been better for him to stay at Bremen. Of course, again, hindsight 2020. And with Matthew Hoppe, this whole Mallorca situation is very strange, and he's had a lot of setbacks that I don't think you could plan for necessarily. COVID, some injuries, real trouble adjusting to Spain, things like that from, from what reports say. And I don't know how much he was in the plans at Schalke necessarily. They needed players, and so that's why Hoppe got a run in the first place. I don't know if that would have continued, but surely that would have been better. Surely taking his chances with Schalke in an environment that he already knew and had been in for at least a while would have been better than going and making that move to Mallorca. Now, I can't blame either one of these players for going and trying that. Maybe they need better advice from agents. But, I mean, at the time, I could see reasons why both of those moves could have worked out. But it is very clear to see, and it was probably clear enough at the time as well, to see that that was a pretty big risk in, in maybe the two Bundesliga. The second Bundesliga would have been a better spot for both of them this season. Uh, Graham, your thoughts on this one? I know your uh, opinions of Norwich are somewhat tainted due to their treatment <laughs> of another player. But uh, what, what do you think here? Yeah, Mr. Gilmore cannot get out of uh, Carroll Road. That's where Norwich play, isn't it? They do. They can't get out of Carroll Road quickly enough at the end of this season. I, In terms of Joe's views there, I, I agree on Hoppy, but I think I disagree on, on Josh Sargent. In his case, even though things haven't gone as planned for him at Norwich City, it, for me anyway, it felt like it was maybe the right time to move on from, from Werder Bremen after the relegation. He'd been there for three seasons. He'd been a first-team player, an important player for two of those seasons. And the fact that he got a move to a Premier League club, albeit a promoted one, I think shows that his, his stock was relatively high and maybe he was slightly better than playing in, in the second tier in, in Germany. It just feels to me like he made the wrong move to the wrong team that wasn't going to play him as a as a number nine, which is where he really should be playing. And that's going to be the interesting thing next season. Not just is he going to get more game time in, this, in the championship, but is he going to be playing as, as a number nine? Because I do think that is important. Maybe in hindsight, it's still, it is better for him to have stayed at Werder Bremen, given how poorly things have gone for him at Norwich. But I, I still feel like it was the right time for him to move on at the end of last season. With Hoppe, I definitely feel he would have been bet, uh, better served staying put and having another season with Schalke. I, I felt that at the time, and I certainly feel that now. Unlike Sargent, he didn't have that regular game time in the Bundesliga under his belt. He'd only played 22 Bundesliga game by the t- uh, games by the time he left Schalke. And unlike Sargent, I just I didn't really feel like he was ready to move on, and he just needs reps at, at this point point in his career he hasn't got that at all at Real Mallorca that move hasn't worked out for him and he probably would have got more game time almost certainly would have got more game time at, at Schalke in the second tier the other thing to mention though is I think Schalke were quite happy to move him on because I think they got four million euros for him from Real Mallorca and they are still in a pretty perilous financial position so maybe Matthew Hoppe didn't have much of a say in whether he was staying or leaving Schalke last season yeah that's interesting and going back to Sargent it will be interesting to see how he gets on in the championship Graham and even if he stays I mean God forbid he goes to like Bournemouth and faces a third relegation battle in a row yeah and and I don't think he's starting as a number nine at Bournemouth because <laughs> Kiefer Moore is doing a very good job for right. them so uh, yeah don't don't go to Bournemouth Josh Sargent it's a lovely place to visit though Graham have you ever been I haven't it's on the south coast isn't it yeah. I have been to lots of places in the south coast but coast but not 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 Bournemouth yeah. I have been to Hastings is there anything like Hastings it's much much nicer than Hastings trust me oh okay <laughs> no battles there anyway thank you very much Adam for the question we're going to take a very quick break and we'll be back with more Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Here's a question from Joey Jedlowski. Thank you very much, Joey. He asks, if the post-COVID substitution rules were in effect in the 2018 qualifying campaign, would the USA have had a better or worse or same qualification finish. Similarly, says Joey, if the pre-COVID substitution rules were in effect for the 2022 campaign, would it have been better, worse, or no impact on the USA standing in the CONCACAF qualifying? This question's got Joe Lowry written all over it. <laughs> Not just in the name as well. Joe, Joey, That's we're, right. we're, we're uh, aligned there. <laughs> so let's start with 2018. Let's look back first, and then we'll move into 2022. I think that the 2022 cycle is a little simpler So looking at if there were up to five subs allowed in a game in the 2018 World Cup qualifying cycle. So starting at a foundational level, I believe that sub rules, having more subs available to you, the updated sub rules, help teams with depth. I think that's pretty clear. When you can bring more good players off the bench than your opponent can, I think you have an advantage, you have energy, and you have quality coming in those spots. Now, the the team that was trying to qualify and failed for the 2018 World Cup wasn't a particularly talented or good U.S. team. There weren't a ton of really good players or game-changing players on that roster. That's just the reality. But they still had a depth advantage over some of the other teams in the hex. If we're thinking about that last game against Trinidad and Tobago, the U.S. had more talent on the field in the first place, and they also had more talent on the bench. So I'm not sure, I I can't be totally sure, that having five subs available to Bruce Arena at the end of that cycle or Jurgen Klinsmann before him would have been enough to help the U.S. men's national team qualify. But the odds were so incredibly low to begin with that the U.S. would miss the World Cup. So maybe getting some extra subs on the field would have been enough to get that job done. Going back to the the game in Cuba on the last day of World Cup qualifying, you could have had Dax McCarty coming on off the bench to, to try and provide some forward thrust and Wando as well, getting in the box to really just be a last-ditch effort if you were still trailing in that game or still needed something from that game. You could have had those players come off the bench in addition to the three that actually came on, and Count Acosta, Clint Dempsey, and Benny Fellhaber. So again, I don't know if it would have made the difference, but I think because more subs helps teams with more depth, it seems to me that the U.S. would have been in a potentially slightly better position, and that is really all they needed. So that's that's 2018 for 2022. I don't think it would have made a real difference. I certainly think it would have made games more difficult for everyone trying to deal with those three-game windows in CONCACAF. And the U.S. did use over three subs in every single game. They used five subs in nine games and four subs in five games of those 14 World Cup qualifiers. But I still think they had the quality and the depth, even with just those three players, to get the job done. It was a little closer than we all probably would have liked it to be. But I don't think things would have changed much this time around, and I think they could have changed last time around. Hmm. 
It's an interesting one, Graham, isn't it? It's a very difficult one to answer because uh, we can only really speculate. But uh, maybe I'll, I'll mm-hmm. ask, what do you think of five subs in general? Because we've seen in the Premier League, um, they're going to bring it back permanently next season, I believe, to have five subs uh, on three occasions during a match. Yeah. The idea of changing 50% of your outfield team, it just panics me. I think I think we're all, we're all still trying to work out if if this new rule favors the big teams or the smaller teams. It means the bigger teams can make better use of their bigger squads. So maybe the, the logic there is that they are going to be better, but then smaller teams might not tire so easily if they can change out as you say half of their outfield team. I do think we need to be in unison as a sport across the sport in terms of what the rule is. So I I don't really like it, but I do agree that if every other league in Europe is doing it, um, then the Premier League should probably do it as well. There does probably need to be that that unity to, to make everything fair and a, a fair playing field. Initially, I disliked it, the, the rule change, and I'm still not totally sold on it, but now it's kind of happened, and I don't know, I, I kind of I kind of forget about it now. I, I kind of go over it quite quickly, even though if you offered it to me, I would probably reverse it. But it's not on my mind all that often, I have to say. Would you reverse it because you like things the way you used to be, Graham? Yeah, traditionalist. That's me. Nationalist, traditionalist, do a lot of things today. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I feel like I'm being labelled. All right. Uh, any more on that one, Joe? Should we move on to the next queue? Let's do it. Let's do it. One final question for the episode from James Dewsbury. What is the greatest individual season ever? Gerd Müller's 73-74 season surely has to be up there, says James. Uh, For the record, Graham, uh, Gerd Müller's 73-74 season, he scored 30 goals for Bayern Munich. He was the league top scorer, the European Cup top scorer. He won a fourth league title with Bayern. He won the European Cup. Oh, and that summer, he went and won the World Cup. He scored the winner in the final and three other goals at that tournament too. So... Graham, for me, that one takes some beating. Yeah, certainly that's not that's not a bad year. It's probably <laughs> it's probably a better year than I've had. Um, but for me, in terms of individual season, so that's the key part for me. Yes, Jared Miller did have a brilliant individual season, but I'm not I'm not factoring in all those trophies really, because obviously that's a that's a team achievement, and yes, he plays a part in the team, and this is why this becomes very difficult, and why awards like the Ballon d'Or are inherently flawed. But in terms of an individual season, I have never seen one like the the season that Messi had in 2011-12, when he scored 82 goals for club and country. And I'll repeat that: 82 goals in a single season. I never thought I'd see anyone reach those sort of numbers. And I don't think, and I don't say this lightly, people throw this sort of thing around a lot. I don't think I'll ever see that again. I don't think that will be achieved in my lifetime. Certainly Graham, not at the elite elite level. I have to interject. Are we including national team goals in a season there? Because it was 73 goals for Barcelona. But then are we getting yeah. into the calendar year nonsense if we uh, include national team in that? No, I'm count- I'm I'm talking about a, a full season. I'm still counting like as as a full season. I'm I'm counting right. national team. But All what right. did you say? Seventy three for Barcelona there. Yeah, it's not bad. Okay, right. Let's just take it at that then. <laughs> Seventy three is still incredible, and I don't think I'll ever see that again. Ronaldo, club and country, he scored sixty nine in that season as well, which is also ridiculous. Um, and again, I don't know if I'll ever see those sort of levels again in in my lifetime. It's particularly at the the elite level. Maybe it might happen in a 
you know, a lower division or something like that with a, with a freak uh, incident. But I would also mention that to me is, is unbeatable. So the, 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 the suggestion I'm now going to make, I don't think beats that. But I would also mention maybe Jamie Vardy's 2015-16 season when he scored in 11 Premier League games in a row, breaking Van Nistelrooy's record of 10. He scored 24 goals that season as Leicester famously won the Premier League title. And that consecutive games run was something incredible where it just felt like I think he scored 14 goals as well over those 11 games that he scored consecutively. It just it just felt like every time he took to the pitch, he was going to score. And keep in mind that Leicester weren't, were unfancied for the title. He was taking on big teams. I think he broke the record against Manchester United. So I would suggest that. But for me, the, the only answer is really messy. 11-12. That Jamie Vardy run is an excellent nomination, Graham. I like that. And you know what? The, goal, the famous goal he scored against Chelsea during that run. Uh, I watched that in Chile's because that's where I go every week. Or I used to go every week. Yeah, fun fact for you. In your booth, with your name on it. In our booth, where they knew my order every single week, because I've only ever ordered one thing there. What do you get? What do you get? What do you get? Um, Honey, chicken, chipotle, chicken, crispers, chicken. That sounds good. Too many chicken. Lots of chicken. They are delicious. They are hella delicious, Joe. Um, With a pumpkin spice latte (laughs) on the side, of course. I'm so basic. The Leo Messi thing, you... um, from the top there, you discounted the trophies, which is fair enough, because if you're counting individual performance over team performance. But in that so season, 2011-12 for Messi, I shall add, he only won the Copa del Rey that season. So his efforts for all they were and 50, 50 league goals, which is ridiculous as well, didn't um, actually bring Barcelona meaningful silverware besides the cup. Yeah, and that, that's the season, if I remember correctly, that's the Jose Mourinho Real Madrid season, isn't it? it which is. is Which is an incredible achievement where everyone mentions Pep Guardiola's Barcelona team as potentially the greatest team of all time, but Mourinho actually took Real Madrid to a league title in, in that period. So good achievement for Real Madrid. Obviously, Ronaldo's goals helped them there, as I, as I mentioned. But yeah, this is, this is where it's very difficult with in, assessing individual performance. Do you... Did, do you take into account the team awards? I think you do to a certain extent, but maybe not put too much weight on them. And for me, that's why I still think Messi comes out on top. Fair enough. Uh, Joe, what's your thoughts on this? Anyone topping Gerd Muller's early 70s pomp? I I agree with Graham. I think Messi in that 11-12 season probably is the right answer to this. But Ryan, you do make some good, compelling arguments. And I don't know which side you actually fall, but you're doing a good job of, of kind of pulling us back in, in different directions. Also, Messi in 2014-15, if we do want to factor in trophies, Barca won the treble, and Messi scored 58 goals for Barcelona. So maybe that's the best of both worlds that satisfies Graham's requirements and your requirements, Ryan. The the only other one that I had, and I don't think this is the right answer, but it does sort of fit in with the, the initial stuff you said about Muller's season back in the 70s, is Ronald Koeman winning the treble with PSV and then winning the Euros with the Netherlands in 1988. So he won the Dutch Cup, the the Dutch League, and the European Cup back in 1988. I certainly don't think that should put him over Messi in those seasons that he's had. And I've already, I guess, made my feelings about Messi as a player very clear. But I do think it is an interesting discussion to be had about how much these different things are weighted. But then we're just talking about the Ballon d'Or again, and we all know how I feel about that. I'm scrambling to see if Ruud Hullet won anything in that year as well, because he would have been in that same Netherlands team. Would he have been at Milan at that time, I'm guessing? Yeah. Mm. I'll look into that later, Google. Um, <laughs> the, the, other, the other one I was going to nominate, um, fellas, was Diego Maradona's first, uh, well, his title, first title-winning season in Napoli, winning the Serie A title in 86-87, coming to a team, a poor team in the south, a poor area of Italy, and just completely 
one man banding them, lifting the tide and taking them to that league title. And he won another one in 89-90 as well. Graham, what do you think about Maradona? And we, you know, we've seen the, the HBO documentary. We've seen a lot of stuff around his season there and yeah. the way he was treated, the way he got the living S kicked out of him in every single game, but still com- uh, competed in such a high level. That Napoli season has to be up there too. Even if, um, I don't know what his stats were, but, you know, title. Yeah, yeah, and the, and the documentary you mentioned there is that is that's the recent one, right? That's right. I went to see that in the cinema. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware it was made by HBO, but that documentary is fantastic and just tells that that story so well. And it's kind of a throwback to a bygone time in soccer where that that wouldn't have happened. Now you wouldn't have had the best team, sorry, the best player in the world going to. Uh, a, a club, I'm not going to say a small club because Napoli aren't a small club, but a club that wasn't a superpower in their league and hadn't won anything for a long time. It'd be the, it'd be the equivalent of Messi after he left Barcelona last summer. Instead of going to PSG, he goes to Marseille and that just would never happen now. And so it feels like something very alien to me. Um, obviously, I wasn't alive when that happened, when, when Maradona did that, and it's a, it's a great documentary. So, yes, a, a good shout. He kind of changed the landscape of Italian soccer for a number of years. Indeed. And Joseph, my instincts were right. I've just Googled it. Uh, Rud Hullet also won Serie A in 87-88, so he could be on a comparable level to Ronald Koeman. Huh, huh? Did well played. Well, pl- one point, Ryan. One point for you to steal Taylor's point system from yesterday. Yay! I know some things about the eighties. <laughs> Yay for me! All right. I mean, Joe doesn't know who Rude Hula is apart oh, from the boot. fact he's the former LA Galaxy manager. That's <laughs> he's his, got good hair. His claim Graham. to fame and uh, he's got in, good in hair. Joe's world. <laughs> good hair. Yeah. Sorry, Joe. It was just too easy. No, I, I get it. I get it. We're all jealous of Joe's youth. Let's just face it, shall we? Um, And let's just admit, this is the end of Listener Questions. We have answered questions. Graham Ruffin, thank you so much for your time on this episode. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Thank you very much, Joseph Lowry. You got it, Ryan. And listener, thank you so much for sticking with us. We'll be back on the feed very soon. But for now, bye.